This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Human beings are meant to work together, not go it alone. We enter the world reliant on others for shelter, nutrition, and emotional support, and these core requirements do not change as we grow older. Yet somehow as we move into adulthood, our intrinsic need for emotional connection, in other words, love, gets discounted. This despite the fact that people who spend their lives apart from, rather than a part of, do not function as well as those who feel emotionally connected. Nowhere is this more apparent than when dealing with addiction. Nevertheless, loved ones of addicts, instead of being encouraged to care for themselves as well as their addicted loved one, are often encouraged to care for themselves instead of their addicted loved one. My guest for this part of today's show has a solution to this problem, and he calls it prodependence. It's a new term that he created that describes healthy interdependence in the modern world. Rather than preaching detachment and distance over continued bonding and assistance, as so many therapists or self-help books and 12-step groups currently do, prodependence celebrates the human need for and pursuit of intimate connection. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about a new way of moving beyond codependency when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Three, two, one. Oh, no. Which button am I... When every second counts, you can't wing it. Uh, Guys, a little help up here? In a home fire, you may have less than two minutes to get out. So make a family home fire escape plan. Then practice home fire drills at least twice a year so everyone knows what to do when they hear... Prepare your family at ready.gov slash fire drill. Brought to you by FEMA, the Ag Council, and Make Safe Happen. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Dr. Rob Weiss, who's the author of Prodependence, Moving Beyond Codependency. Rob, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's certainly a pleasure. So let's have you set up a little bit better than I did in the introduction what prodependence is and how it differs from codependency. Well, I've spent about, oh my goodness, almost 25 years in the treatment industry, and I have to say, as you're probably aware, we've seen a whole bunch of new and different ways of treating addicts come along over that period of time. But I really have not seen a really good new model come along for the support and treatment of family members, loved ones, wives, husbands, and partners. Um, And a lot of the literature that we work with in mental health and addiction now has changed. We look at addiction differently than we used to. We look at relationships differently than we used to. We look at men and women differently in treatment than we used to. And yet we still use this kind of old uh, standard of what we used to call codependency, which never even was really validated as a diagnosis. So what is it and why do we still use it is sort of what the question I was asking. And then I tried to find a different way to look at it. Well, you know, actually, that's a very good question. Uh, which you weren't really asking, but it's a good question, I think, for, for listeners. Is, why don't you talk about what codependency is? Because it's a, it's a term that gets thrown around all the time, but I would yeah. bet that uh, most people don't exactly know what it is supposed to mean. 
Well, it's interesting because, um, at least interesting to me, because these things interest me, but I remember when codependency was first written about in the 1980s, and it was really written primarily by women who were speaking about uh, they had grown up with alcoholic fathers, they understood some of the issues that would play out in their adult relationships, and a number of these women found that they had become dependent on alcoholic men. And so the idea of codependency initially came out of this concern that people who grow up with dysfunction in their family are going to marry someone with similar dysfunction. And then because of what they grow up with, they're going to make the alcoholism or the drug addiction worse. In other words, codependency basically says you're a part of the addiction problem just because you're involved with this person. And a lot of the things you do to try to help them we, we need to call that enabling or fixing or rescuing because it really doesn't always help them in the right way. So it's probably coming out of your problem, the partner. Hmm. Uh, much of codependency was a form of looking at what was wrong at the partners. Wow. Okay. And so <laughs> That's how what do I say? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> hmm. all right. So let's, let's get past that. So how do, how do we then get to pro-dependence? How does that, the dynamic work and how do you, explain it and leverage it for moving forward for both sides. Well, it's kind of interesting because um, some of the things that came out of codependency are important for people to look at. It may be important for someone who's married to an alcoholic or a drug addict or grows up in a family with someone like that to look at their issues and see how that might have affected them in their lives. But it's not necessary when someone comes into me to see me who's the wife of an alcoholic and says, my husband is falling apart. He hasn't worked in six months. He drives drunk. I'm working three jobs. I'm miserable. I've given up all my friends. I'm doing everything I can to stop him drinking. It's just not productive for me as a therapist or a counselor to say to you, well, I'm really sorry your husband has this problem, but let's talk about what's wrong with you. (laughs) And that really is where codependency has ended up with spouses and partners and family members thinking, well, wait a minute, I I didn't start drinking. And and, and it gets to, honestly, arm is like down a slippery slope because when the partner starts to say, well, it isn't me, it's the person who's drinking and using that's the problem. Under codependency, they get called, they're they're told they're, they're not looking at the problem properly. They keep pointing outside of themselves when they need to look at themselves. And what prodependency says is, you know what? And this really goes with, how we view mental health today in terms of attachment and not just trauma. We look, at, uh, we look at our mental health in many ways, not just in terms of the person's singular ability, any person, to independently do well in life. I think incre- increasingly we look at mental health today, not just in terms of how I can achieve, but how good, what is the solid, how good are my relationships? Um, how good is my, my partner, my marriage, my committed partner? How good is my relationship with my community? You know, I know when we have people who are troubled by drug addiction yeah. or mental illness, we bring them into community to make them better. It's, it's being in relationship that is a part of our health. So I looked at codependency and I said, how could we really blame anybody for anything that they did when they see their loved one falling apart, when they see that loved one, you know, drinking themselves to death? Why would we blame them for anything they try to do to make it better? Because they love that person and they want to make it better and they're doing the best they can. And you know what? Sometimes they don't even do the right thing. But codependency would call that enabling or fixing or rescuing. Whereas pro-dependence would say, 
wow, what a fantastic job you did of trying to save your family. Too mm-hmm. bad it didn't work out perfectly. Maybe we can do it better. So here's some tools you can use and perhaps to make it a little bit more effective. I don't want to blame someone for any attempt they've made to right. try to rescue or save someone you love because I think today we think of our deep attachment to those we love as being healthy. So the harder I try to work, even if it's not productive, to help rescue, save somebody that I love when they're failing because of drugs and alcohol, under pro-dependence, I want to celebrate that person. I want to say thank you, for, thank you for loving that person and staying with them through all that crap. And now let's see if we can't make it better together. Yeah, I think it's an important way of looking at it or a new lens, if you want to use a, a term like that, it, it, that, that helps. Because I would imagine that putting people in a position of doing it all wrong, nobody wants to hear that. And I would imagine that that probably kept a lot of people from getting the sort of guidance or coaching that they needed. Well, I, I don't really think that the people who evolved the idea of codependency intended it to end up meaning kind of weak, helpless person who does nothing but rescue losers. <laughs> but that's kind Probably of what not. ended up. Uh, I'm, I'm sure not. But they wrote about it in books that were written in 1982, 84, 86. This is almost 40 years later. Um, you know, we are living in a different world. And, and the things that drove codependency to make sense at the time just really don't hold together now. And, and here's another thing, Armin. Even if somebody is desperately in need of emotional help, and I can clearly see that because they come in to see me because their wife or husband is drinking. Well, you know, half the time someone gets four sessions with their insurance or six sessions with their insurance. We don't even, uh, we're don't, and then they get thrown in some group. You know, we, we don't really have the support that we had 35 years ago for people who are partnering with addicts um, to help them grow personally. Maybe our focus should just be helping them through the crisis. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering if even, even putting it in those terms, helping them help the addict or, or somebody who's dealing with with those issues, that, that puts a lot of pressure on someone who's probably not a, a trained mental health professional, that the idea that they should or, or are even capable of doing anything to help somebody well, I, with, with I such major is, issues. Well, I, I don't think anybody went to high school being taught how to work with an alcoholic and get them sober. I just don't think we learned that in high school. No. So if you, marry, if you marry one or one turns out to be your dad and you end up not being the most helpful because you're totally stressed out and worried and concerned and trying to fix everything, and then if you've got kids or grandkids, or, you know, why would anyone say that you didn't do the best job you could in the best way you could, and now that you've sought out some help from a counselor, a 12-step program, whatever it is, we're going to – make your efforts more effective. Um, but you're, you know, you're absolutely right. This is a change in lens. My goal for that the person who loves an addict is still for them to learn how to love themselves better, how to take better care of themselves, how to focus on themselves and give the addict some space to breathe. You know, it, it's not about them uh, working harder. It's about them working smarter. And is there a way forward? Are there specific steps that need to be taken? Or is it all, uh, it depends on the individual situation? Well, I, 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 um, I think with each person comes a different answer, but there's an underlying theme here, which is I'm never going to say to you, um, you didn't, you helped your loved one out of your own pathology, or you're acting out 
some part of your past. Or the, the theme here is that everyone who tries to help someone they love gets a, a, a reward and a congratulations for trying to help. And, um, and, the, and how they try to help and what we can do to make the helping more effective is going to differ depending on the drug or the substance or the behavior. But it's the attitude of, you know, well, and let me tell you, I get, I get a little heated up about this because we have a history of blaming, devaluing, and underestimating the importance of our caregivers in our culture, our teachers, our nurses, our therapists, our social workers, and basically jobs that have traditionally fallen to women. So this whole way of thinking about some woman who is struggling to support a man who's having problems, that there's something wrong with her because she's being a helper or a supporter or mm -hmm. that's not a help. I think that's not a fair. And we have a long history before codependency of that. Um, in the original, some of the early Alcoholics Anonymous literature, the way many therapists referred to a wife of an alcoholic was, I'll just put it in the simplest terms. If I was married to her, I would drink too. <laughs> um, right, Rob, I don't think codependency, me... codependency just sort of intellectualizes that way of thinking. Talking with Rob Weiss, who's the author of Prodependence, Moving Beyond Codependency. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Rob about codependence and, uh, or prodependence and codependence as well, probably. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Dr. Rob Weiss, who's the author of Pro-Dependence, Moving Beyond Codependency. You say something rather provocative, just one of the many things you say that's provocative, but one of them I think is, is interesting, that addiction, I'm sorry, addiction is an intimacy disorder. Would you explain mm -hmm. that? Yeah, I would. Um... I, I think it's provocative if you believe that everybody who tries an addictive substance is going to become an addict. I think we have a, a I don't think I know after 25 years of treating addicts that there are people who start smoking cigarettes and then they say, this isn't for me. And there are people who start using heroin and they say, this isn't for me. And then there are other people who seem undeniably incapable of escaping the alcohol, the cigarettes, or whatever the addictive substance is. There seems to be more going on with people who are addicts, more about their emotional challenges and their mental health challenges that um, are fairly consistent, um, whether you're drinking, using, gambling, gaming, or sexing, that addicts seem to have challenges often in early life with how their caregivers supported them and their experiences. Um, this often leads them not feeling safe turning to people when they need help, but boy, are they comfortable turning to that bottle or that uh, house of prostitution or that casino. Uh, do you think that that's, 
that much of it is is having to do with the nurture part as opposed to the nature part. And I'm wondering because I've looked at some some research recently that's talking about how there could be some particular gene that that is expressed in a particular way that that makes people more likely to be to be uh, well, this is, addicted to this something. Is, this is really helpful. What you're talking about, you're talking about um, not just what our DNA sets us up for, but how our genes express themselves based on our experiences. When we talk about nature nurture, we used to talk about, I think, how your DNA set you up for life and then how your interactions in life affected your memory and your thinking and your experiences and who you became. But now we understand, as you were just saying, that if I have a violent mother or I have a a very stressful experience in childhood that's ongoing because my parents have huge financial problems and they fight all the time, that those stressors are going to lead potentially to genes that I have for addiction or compulsivity or obsession or anxiety to express themselves as depression, anxiety, and with other kinds of emotional issues. Whereas had I grown up in a more stable environment, I would have had the potential for addiction, mental health issues, et cetera, but they would not have occurred. Right. I think it's that's just, what you're saying. Well, yeah, it gets confusing, I think, for some people because, as you were saying, people, some people may try heroin and they may say it's not for me and they're done with it. That's not a big deal. Uh, but then there are also people who grow up in the most horrific conditions with horrible, abusive parents doing all sorts of terrible things who turn out to be fine. Right. And, and, and so it, it, it's so it's not as though one is necessarily going to cause the other. That's the that's the thing. And I think it's. A, well, a lot of people would like to, it's the causation versus correlation problem. And, and a exactly. lot of people want to see that it's, oh, this co- A causes B or B causes A, but it's a mush of the whole thing. Well, it's not that simple because there's stuff like resilience. You know, how much does an individual who's been through trauma have the ability to bounce back and really recover from that versus somebody else who's not particularly resilient emotionally? And those two Two people could come out of the same family. They could be brother and sister. One thrives. One ends up being a heroin addict. They both had crappy experiences growing up. One of them had great social skills, so they got through with the support they got from friends and people at school. The other kid didn't, and, you know, the drugs are more appealing. But I think the the issue that I'm talking about is not solely one that's biological. It has to do with our emotional lives and my absolute belief that the way we refresh ourselves as human beings, whether we are having a bad day or having a bad life, is with our relationships, with the people we love, with the people who love us back, with the communities we're involved with. It is when someone's mentally ill, they're almost always isolated. And how do we heal them? We bring them into groups and community. When someone is an addict and they're struggling, they're almost always out there alone. And we bring them into community. We have them tell their story and be accepted. I'm talking about the basic human elements of our depending on people to heal us and make us safe. And you're right. Many, many people go through abuse and never end up as addicts, but far more addicts have histories of abuse than addicts that don't, that do not. So how does this play out in, in the real world? How does it play pro-dependency? I mean, how do you, how, how does a pro-dependent relationship look as opposed to a codependent one? Oh, I think a pro-dependent relationship is where, Somebody doesn't question themselves when they go to try to help the person they love. Um, they don't question their motivations. They may say, oh, am I doing the right action? Like, is bringing home a bottle for him today going to be helpful or not? Let me see. 
Um, they may question their action as well they should because they weren't trained to, to, to heal an alcoholic, but they should never question their motivation. Codependence says that my motivation to bring home that bottle or do whatever I need to do for that alcoholic comes out of love and my love for my family and my desire to heal my family, nothing more, nothing less. And to leave that partner or family member never having to question their motivations for wanting to help somebody beyond the fact that they love them um, is a sea change from codependency. You know, Rob, a lot of the examples that you've given are women as the ones who are caring for a, a man with an addiction or, or a trauma of some kind. Are there differences when the gender roles are reversed? Or not the roles, but the, the, the sexes are reversed when, when it's a, a woman who is the addict and the man is the caregiver? It's so great that you asked this question. And I have to first answer the underlying question, which is, you know, why don't you write more about you know, men affected by wives or addicts. And the reason is, quite honestly, you know, if you look at our addiction treatment centers, about 75% of the population is male. Um, yeah. If you also look at, and you will know this, sir, who buys self-help books? Yeah, well, that's mostly women. 90, yeah. 95%. I know, I've written 10 of them. 95%. And so, you know, and who bought codependency and codependent no more and, no, and women who love too much and almost all women. So... When I'm talking to caregivers and people in a caregiving role, I'm either going to be talking to a woman or someone who is going to read a book that a woman gave them, or they're going to be in a profession or in a role where they want to learn more about this, what we consider to be traditionally female roles. But the prejudice and the stigma that comes with being involved with an addict doesn't make any difference whether I'm male or female. Um, I could be married to someone who has cancer, and people would bring me casseroles if I you know, work three jobs to help rescue my wife. But if my wife were using opioids and she were on her third round of treatment, uh, they wouldn't talk to me the same way. They would talk to me about enabling and, and rescuing and, and letting that person struggle on their own and detaching and things that really just aren't germane. Yeah. So, so it really, you're saying that it's really not a a gender specific thing, because I, I mean, definitely, if you no. look at if you look at things like opiate overdoses, which is something that really, I, I find it I find it troubling that we leave the the sex of the people who are dying out. Mm. That it's it's truly a male problem. Um, well, but, it's it, uh, you know, women struggle in different ways. I mean, it, you may or may not know my my real my not real area, but my early. My primary area of work has been with intimacy disorders and sex addiction. So I see men 70 to 80 percent of the time, but I also know that I have a lot of women who struggle with food and alcohol and drugs who may be in an eating disorders program. They're struggling with their weight, and they're focused on that, or they're focused on relationships and the craziness around that. Um, and it's not unusual for intimacy and relationship problems to be tied to all kinds of addictions. And that's really the, the general area where I provide treatment. And so you're, you're selling the books mostly to a female audience, but the message is getting through to guys as well, because I'm sure there are plenty of women who are saying, hey, read this, uh, or well, uh, people are getting it. So, I mean, how, how does it, that's a good what, what sort of, of response are you getting from male readers? Um, I haven't heard from a single male reader, um, but I have heard from there are about twenty five star Amazon reviews, and that's pretty good. I mean, not even a four. Please don't go on there and write a four if you you know heard this, unless you read the book and really don't agree. But here's the deal: um, I'm getting messages. I swear to God, I will send these to you, sir. 
There are things like, Dr. Rob, I have, I gave up on my family because I was told that I was too much of a rescuer. Every therapist I went to said that um, the problem was me. Thank you for telling me that there's nothing wrong for me to loving and trying to save my son from dying on the streets of heroin. I mean, these are the yeah. kinds of stories that I That's hear nice. where people say, I, I can't get someone to tell me that the problem is my heroin using son. They keep saying it's me. And, and I just don't think that's helpful or true. Yeah. Rob Weiss is the author of Pro-Dependence, Moving Beyond Codependency. Rob, thank you very much. It's very interesting. Sir, I really appreciate your time and your patience. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broughton, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. Reading is an incredibly important skill, one that can affect almost every aspect of your life. Unfortunately, too many kids and adults don't enjoy reading. Graphic novels and series by J.K. Rowling like Harry Potter or Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events or the many series by Rick Reardon like Piercy Jackson and the Kane Chronicles and others have certainly helped attract young readers. But not all kids are interested in adventure, magic, or mystery. Here are some books for kids with other interests, including travel, building, filmmaking, writing, and life itself. Adventures with Zap by Diane Landy, illustrated by Allison Hershey. Reading and writing go together, and kids who excel at one tend to do well at the other as well. This book is designed to help kids grow as writers by stimulating their creativity. Zap, a blue alien from the planet Vox Nova, Meow, who's a stowaway from planet Earth, and Gooey, who's an orange alien from Vox Nova, give young readers more than a hundred creative prompts that usually start with getting the child to draw something. An idea would be, pretend you and your family have the noses of hound dogs, or draw a picture of a time you fell down and got hurt. And then they ask the child to write about the drawing. It's a smart, engaging way to build thinking and writing skills. It's for ages four and up. costs about $9. You can get it at Amazon.com. Lights, Camera, Alice by Mara Rockliffe, illustrated by Simona Charola. If you've never heard of Alice Guy Blaché, you're not alone. But Alice was the first female movie maker and one of the genre's most important innovators. Alice, who was born in France in 1875, experimented with camera angles, color, animation, and many other techniques that were decades ahead of their time. She was also one of the first to reverse traditional gender roles, such as having a leading lady jump off a bridge onto a speeding train, and was a pioneer in special effects, such as blowing up a pirate ship. Alice's story will be an inspiration to both girls and boys, and of course their parents. It's for ages 5 to 8, costs about $12. You can get it at Amazon.com. 
How to Build Airplanes by Peter Blackert. If you've got bins full of Lego bricks or those from other similar-looking systems and you've wondered what to do with them, this book has the perfect answer. Build an airplane. Blackert, who's a car designer in real life and did a book on building cars out of Lego, has provided detailed instructions for building dozens of jets, bombers, and warbirds. Plans include the Sopwith Camel, P-51D Mustang, the F-35, a Mitsubishi Zero, and many more. The easier ones require fewer than 100 pieces. The more complicated ones use more than 2,000. But the good news is that you probably have most of the required pieces in those bins or under your couch. Great for Lego fans, airplane buffs, or anyone who's looking for a wonderful family activity. It's for ages 8 and up, costs under 16 bucks, and you can get it at Amazon.com. Everything and Everywhere by Mark Martin. We live in an amazing world that's filled to the brim with people, places, animals, cities, and plenty of other things to discover. All you need is a good guide and a little curiosity, which is exactly what writer-illustrator Martin provides. The text is overflowing with facts about every stop along our round-the-globe trip, like how many stone blocks it took to build the pyramids of Khufu, and that Godzilla has very bad breath. And the illustrations are overflowing with color, whimsy, and lots of detail. It's for ages 5 and up, costs about 13 and a half bucks, and you can get that at Amazon.com. You can get reviews and explanations for lots and lots of toys and games and all sorts of fantastic activities to do with your kids at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. And there's a lot more of this positive parenting show coming right up, so don't go anywhere. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. One eighty over one eleven, and I had a stroke. One forty-five over ninety-two, and then I had a heart attack. One fifty over ninety, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhpp.org. Everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of Mr. Dad. Thanks for staying with us. Anyone who has seen a child recover from a wound or a broken bone knows that kids are made to heal. Their bodies are more resilient, more adaptive, and far more able to withstand acute stress than adults. Yet, children are often treated as an afterthought by the medical establishment and shunted off to doctors who specialize in caring for adults. Will an anesthesiologist accustomed to treating older patients know how to handle a toddler? If your soccer-playing daughter suffers a concussion, should you take her to the nearest ER or drive further to seek out doctors who specialize in treating kids? In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a doctor, a pediatric surgeon, in fact, who is the president and CEO of one of the major children's hospitals in this country. 
about his experiences, and he makes the case that children are more than miniature adults. He's also going to tell us about some of the brave kids that he's treated over the years and about the revolution that's taking place in children's medicine. He'll also talk about what all children need to survive and, more importantly, perhaps, what parents need to know about how to interface with the medical profession when they have a sick and sometimes a very sick child. We'll start talking about stories from the frontiers of pediatric medicine when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Hey, Kevin, thinking about saving for retirement? Yeah, but how do I start? It's easy with Avvo, a retirement coach. Let's learn the Avvo bet. A is for taking action. Not anxiety? No, Kevin, you're going to be fine. You sing? Barely. V is for variety. Huh, change up my strategy. Okay. O is for optimize your savings. Let Avvo lead the way. Visit aceyourretirement.org today. today. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Kurt Newman, who is the author of Healing Children, A Surgeon's Stories from the Frontiers of Pediatric Medicine. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about, you're also the president and CEO of Children's National. Tell us about what that is. Well, uh, Children's, Na- <clears throat> Children's National is the uh, Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C., so uh, most of my career, uh, I've been at, at Children's. Uh, I was a surgeon and then chief of surgery, and now the last seven years, I've been the CEO. And do they have any particular specialty besides children that they, that they deal with there? Well, we take care of uh, uh, kids, whether they're newborns or sometimes even before uh, children are born uh, when they have certain conditions. Uh, through their teenage years, and then more and more we're seeing uh, young adults and and even some adults with conditions that they've survived, and uh, we're the best people that know how to take care of these kids. How did you happen to to decide to focus on that? I mean, you're you're going through medical school, you do your various rotations and and internships and things. Some people end up in doing heart surgery, and you ended up with little kids. How, How did that happen? Well, you know, when I started medical school, uh, the last thing I wanted to be was a surgeon, first of all. I was going to be a cardiologist, and then I had my own brush with surgery. I had uh, the diagnosis of a thyroid cancer was when I was in medical school, and my surgeon was terrific. The operation cured me, and I, I decided uh, through that, wow, this had so much impact, uh, I wanted to go into surgery. And so I was doing, then doing my training to be an adult surgeon, uh, and I was going to focus on cancer. And then I had a rotation uh, that was going to be at a children's hospital. And before that, I thought that was, uh, again, probably the last thing I wanted to do. I had this image in my mind that a children's hospital must be very depressing, uh, a lot of sick kids, a lot of tough stories. And I walked into that hospital, and I discovered it was anything but. It was full of hope and inspiration. Uh, there was art, music. Uh, there were kids that were just uh, such, such so courageous and 
uh, I knew right, right then and there that's what I wanted to do. So I made a pivot over to uh, uh, pediatric surgery, surgery for children, and I've never looked back. Now, I've thought, and this may not be the best analogy, but I've thought in a way that being a pediatrician or a pediatric surgeon in, in some ways must be like being a vet, vet a veterinarian, in, in that your patients can't always explain to you what it is that's going on. You can just look at them and there's something wrong. You can see that they hurt or there's a lump or something something is off, but how do you how do you deal with that part of it? Well, there is uh, some of that. You have to be uh, very, uh, a very good listener, and uh, you also, one of the things I've learned and I, I mentioned in my book is you also really have to listen to the family and particularly the, the, the mothers. You can gain so much knowledge there and, uh, and clues about what's going on, uh, and it is more, more difficult sometimes. But with all the technology that's come along and, and imaging and, you know, it's just amazing the science that's happening. Uh, it's gotten a little little easier in some ways. Uh, there's so many other uh, things that uh, can add to trying to make a diagnosis. But at the heart of it is being a, a really good listener. The, the other dimension, I'd say, that makes uh, uh, pediatrics and pediatric specialists in children's hospitals uh, special is that we're always thinking forward. It's not just the situation we have in front of us, you know, like a, uh, a broken bone or, or uh, uh, the uh, pain or, or, or whatever. Uh, it's also thinking forward about what's the potential of that child. What is it that I'm going to do today uh, that's going to impact that uh, child uh, for the rest of his life and making decisions sort of almost with that extra dimension looking out over the time, you know, I've seen that uh, so many times, and, and now I'm enjoying seeing these kids that, that I've taken care of that have grown up where those decisions I made uh, played out and uh, with a lot of success. Do you have trouble watching medical TV shows? You know, I do. Uh, I'm always picking <laughs> them apart, and, uh, you know, they, oh, boy, they missed that one. They're getting better and better at that, and, and there's so much drama that's packed into these shows but uh you know i think they do give uh, some uh, uh some insight and the the people that go into medicine and and, and children's medicine you know they're so uh, committed and passionate and when that comes across through those shows uh, i really appreciate it i mean i was thinking about that, that it's all packed into such a short period of time and i would imagine some of the the diagnostics and the testing and and figuring out this thing that didn't work and that thing that didn't work, you know, they get it all done in, in an hour or if you, know, if you take out the commercials, 48 minutes or whatever it is. And for you, it must be taking days or weeks sometimes or longer. Uh, that, that's exactly right. I mean, they do uh, pack it in. And, and one of the things, I've, and the reason I wrote uh, my book, was to help people, particularly parents, but people in general, uh, understand the, the special value of a children's hospital. And, you know, a lot of people don't know uh, how different it is or how special uh, a hospital like that is or how special a, a pediatrician is. So I want to get across the idea that it is different, that uh, the hospitals are equipped differently, the tests are different, the doctors are different. You can't get that done in a, a TV show. So I, I did it through these stories of kids that I took care of that, try and 
and uh, help people understand how different it is, and also give them some tools about how they can prepare themselves and be be part of it. Well, tell us one of the stories. Well, you know, um, I had a, 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 a baby that was born, and I first met him on an operating room table. His name was Tyler, and I was completely uh, unprepared for what I, I saw when I uh, met Tyler in the in that operating, he was four hours old. Uh, he was no bigger than a grapefruit, and he was born with a really tough situation. Something I really uh, hadn't had much experience with. All his organs were um, on the outside, and um, mm. I knew that I had to. Whatever I did in that operating room uh, was going to uh, impact him the rest of the life. His life. Now the good news is he is now he's grown up he's 30 years old he's happily married he's even had his own healthy son so i kind of spoiled the story there but he went through 22 operations and uh lots of therapy lots of lots of uh, uh different things he had to overcome but uh he was a fighter he was courageous and he's just lived to uh, uh live a very uh, complete and happy life and i always think back to that situation on that operating room table when the decisions I was making were going to extend all through uh, the rest of his life. And that's the beauty of pediatric medicine, children's uh, specialists, is that uh, that impact uh, can have so much uh, positive effect for those kids. So you want yeah. uh, people, you want people that have that approach. Now, with a kid like that, was that a surprise to the doctors or the, or the parents that the organs were like that, or did they know that was coming? You know, in this case, it was a big surprise. And uh, more and more with the technology we have, uh, that, that doesn't happen as, as frequently. Uh, but even, uh, and, and really one of the points here is that even with all that, uh, this child, this baby, just had a, the, the total potential to uh, be... Uh, a wonderful kid. So you never want to give up, and uh, uh, no matter what you're presented with. And does that leave scars? I mean, you're talking about a baby who's so young, with, with uh, doing a, I would imagine, a significant amount of cutting. Or does the does he have scars as an adult, or does that heal in a different way than it does for adults? You know, that's a terrific uh, uh, question because uh, we used to think, well, there was no difference in the healing. And more and more, we're seeing that uh, babies and, and very uh, uh, newborn and even before birth, their healing is different, and the scars are different. So they they do scar scar less uh, physically. I think the other thing we need to think about is uh, making sure they don't scar in terms of their brains, in terms of uh, their neurological uh, development, and and that's one of the things that really uh, I, I came to learn. Even with that case, my my future wife, she was a, it was, she was, we were there uh, together. She's a nurse. Uh, she scolded me be, uh, during, after that operation because I hadn't been paying enough attention to the baby he needed his mother. And, you know, it was more of a clinical situation. I've never made that mistake again. Uh, and we think about all of the, the brain development and all of the things we do. We need to be very, very aware of the impact of the hospital or the care that we're providing. 
talking with Kurt Newman, who's the author of Healing Children. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Kurt about his experience as a pediatric surgeon and more. I'm Armin Braun. You're listening to Positive Parenting. GTG, BRB, OMW, be there in a few. You may think that these kinds of texts are fine because of their length, and you can easily send them at a stoplight. But no, answering one text can take your attention away from the road for five seconds. And traveling at 55 miles an hour, that's enough time to travel the length of a football field. Make good decisions. Don't text and drive. Visit stoptextstoprex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, Noise, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Kurt Newman, who's the author of Healing Children, A Surgeon's Stories from the Frontiers of Pediatric Medicine. So you've talked a couple of times about the different technologies that have happened uh, over over the, the many years that you've been doing this. What's the biggest advance that you've seen that has, has really helped you to do your job better? Well, I think one of the uh, biggest things is the the advances in the technology of imaging, of, of x-rays, of CAT scans and MRIs, so that uh, there's fewer and fewer surprises in terms of the diagnosis of things. I, I'd say another big area of advance is the different medications uh, that we have now, the, the anesthesia, the pain medications, the antibiotics. So uh, and, and more and more of them are specific uh, for children. Uh, that's one of the things that uh, had bothered me early in my career is that devices, uh, drugs uh, were not designed with children in mind. They were typically they would be uh, created for adults, and then we'd have to uh, modify them back to uh, use in children. If that might be a, a robot or a scope or uh, even most medications are not designed with children in mind. We're starting to shift that around. And I think, uh, for me, in a sense, that philosophy of, of that shift to putting children first is very, very rewarding because it's frustrating when you see most of the research going for adult medicine, uh, most of the device and drug development going for adults. And I think it's such a better return on investment if we in, in, do that in, in for our children. Now, you mentioned, Kurt, one of the reasons that you wrote the book was to, to help parents. How, do, how can a parent who's got a child who's sick, who's pre-verbal, begin to take notes or prepare themselves for meeting with a doctor? Sure. That, you know, is so important uh, for uh, parents to feel empowered to be part of the team. You know, it's uh, uh, for many, many years, uh, people have been deferential to the medical profession, and I understand that because of all the, the knowledge, but the parents know their children the best, and so having that, those observations, those uh, uh, that are, that, that a doctor needs, a hospital needs. Another side of that is being prepared before a child gets sick. So being uh, able to talk to the pediatrician and say, well, where, 
where would you send my child if you were sick? What what specialist do you use? Uh, if he needs surgery, are these pediatric anesthesiologists? A lot of people don't even think about uh, who's going to uh, put their child to sleep or know where the closest emergency department is that, that takes care of children and has everything that's needed for a child or even make sure your health plan includes the children's hospital uh, as part of the coverage. People don't uh, think about these things because you sort of go along thinking your child is healthy, there's not going to uh, be anything that, that happens. But my experience tells me uh, you're in much better shape if you've thought about those kinds of things ahead of time. So if you're in a crisis, you can deal with the child and not have to worry about uh, making decisions like that. I would imagine in your position, I mean, I've, I've known some, some doctors over the years, especially some ER doctors, and they've all lost patients. And that, that's just, they somehow have, have managed to be able to put that behind them, that it's part of the job, that it's part of the deal. Does that come into play with you? I would imagine that you've lost some patients along the way. How, how hard is that? It's hard. Uh, and... You know, it's one of the hardest things even now in my current job as a, as a CEO. Uh, you think about the, the, the kids, some, some of whom you get close to in the families. I think of one. Uh, his name was Casey. Uh, he was such a gregarious kid. He, uh, everybody loved him in the hospital when he'd come in. He, he was battling a cancer uh, uh, that had shown up uh, with some pain while he was playing soccer in his leg, and it was a bone cancer. Uh, we did everything we could, surgery, uh, the chemotherapy, uh, radiation therapy, even to the point of amputating his leg, and I'd operated on him a few times. This kid was so positive, so upbeat. We called him the mayor. I mean, he just had this this impact on, on people around him and, and just the energy and positive energy that, that he had. Uh, when he passed away, the, the church was full, uh, and sometimes we learn from these kids and families in, 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 a, in a different way, and it, it, it excites, excites us and empowers us to do even more, uh, to, to uh, be inspired to uh, rededicate ourselves to, to when, when you have a kid like that, but the you know, I miss him, and I, I think about him. Hmm. Have there been others that have been been really real challenges to to deal with? I mean, something that that perhaps a, a choice that you made that led to a bad outcome. Well, you know, I think uh, the uh, as a surgeon, uh, uh, you are in situations where you're making decisions and and trying to uh, do your best and 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 be involved in a way that uh, you take all the information in and work with the family. Uh, and I have had uh, a few, uh, fortunately not many, over the years where maybe I regretted uh, a choice I made. It's not generally made in a sense of, uh, of you know, in a, in a selfish way. It's it's trying to do the, the right thing, but the, in the learning and in the experience and in the, I guess, the humility of always 
examining uh, what we do as doctors, as surgeons, as nurses, I think that's that's how you grow. And uh, mm-hmm. I think the families I've gotten close to, even when we've been through a long trial, uh, we've emerged uh, uh, stronger. And, you know, it's uh, we're not there yet in terms of being able to do everything we can do, whether it's for cancer or for some genetic diseases or the one that is troubling me, me the most these days is, is mental and behavioral health. Yeah. We're not doing enough there. We're, uh, yeah. There's so much more, whether it's research or uh, uh, providing training or uh, identifying problems and taking the stigma off of that. So uh, that's what I love about medicine, though, is that there's this opportunity to to even to to double down and and make more of an impact. You know, you mentioned a little bit about the deference that people have, parents in particular, have for the medical profession. But I would imagine that there's the other side of that, and I'm wondering how you deal with this kind of thing, where a patient or a parent, if sorry, is is uh, being a little aggressive. Uh, well, I, I, I read this article on the Internet, or I saw an episode of House or something where where this situation was, or how come you're not trying this or that? How do you deal with that? Did, you know, you want to essentially tell them to just shut up and stay out of the way, but you don't <laughs> want to be rude about it. Well, I, I try and see that as a uh, true commitment on their part to, <laughs> to to know more and to be involved and engaged, and I never want to um, uh, turn that off uh, to a point. But uh, I think it's a process of education, and there's been some times where somebody's brought something to me, and and uh, you know it's something I didn't know. I mean, there's so many, uh, there's so only so many things you can keep up with, but I think it's a, a process of education and and taking that. In energy and interest, because uh, at the heart of this is their passion for their child, and turning that into a uh, into something positive, and educating them about um, the medicines or the direction or the advice that that we're giving. I don't uh, think that it's uh, a bad idea to have other views and opinions, and and and, and frequently second opinions on on what we're recommending. I think in many ways that strengthens the, the process and having the parents engaged and involved in the team is such a powerful positive. Kurt Newman is the author of Healing Children, a Surgeon's Stories from the Frontiers of Pediatric Medicine. He's also the president and CEO of Children's National. Uh, what's the website for Children's National, Kurt? It's uh, uh, www.childrensnational.org. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you. It's wonderful to be part of this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.